Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. A quick note before we begin. This episode includes descriptions of violence and attempted suicide. It's July 30th, 2021, the last Friday before Congress breaks for summer vacation, but not Congresswoman Cori Bush. We are out here. We're going to continue to be out here. So I'm calling all of my colleagues, Congress members, if you support this, come back out here and be with us today. The representative from St. Louis, Missouri, was standing on the steps of the U.S. Capitol, and she was calling on Congress to come back and do their jobs. Come back out here because we need to be brought back to this house to finish this work so that people don't end up on the street while we go vacation. We cannot go vacation while people are at risk. She's talking about the millions of renters in this country, disproportionately black and brown families, struggling to make rent after losing income during the pandemic. They had been protected from eviction for more than a year. But those protections were about to expire if Congress didn't act. The congresswoman wasn't alone. There were protesters, too, with signs and sleeping bags. And they stayed there for five days, in the cold, in the rain. Here we are. We're still out here. It is pouring. It's pouring on us. We cannot have these people lose their homes. 57 members of the Congressional Black Caucus all supported extending the moratorium. So I want to be on record. All members of the Congressional Black Caucus. We spoke to the congresswoman a few months after the protest. She said sleeping on the steps of the Capitol brought back memories. Once the temperature started to drop, I was triggered. Almost two decades ago, Congresswoman Cori Bush was an unhoused single mom, living out of her Ford Explorer with two young kids. It took me back to those moments when I was cold and sleeping in a car, um, wondering if my babies were warm enough, not having enough blankets, no matter how many blankets we put on us, no matter how many uh, 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 items of clothing that we pulled out of the trash bags that were in the car to cover. You know, it was just, I just, it was just like you just couldn't get warm enough. Not only has Bush been homeless, She's been evicted three times. Before she was elected to Congress, she was a nurse and a Black Lives Matter activist. I kept thinking, who speaks for us? Who speaks for us and who speaks for single parents? Who speaks for Black women? Who speaks for us? For all the women who've been through what she's been through. The number of Black women that I know, um, just through the course of my life, who've been evicted from homes is very high. And the data backs that up. Even before the pandemic, Black women were the most vulnerable to job loss, most likely to be single heads of households, and 
most likely to be evicted. Research from the ACLU and Princeton's eviction lab show Black women renters get evicted at twice the rate of white renters. But that story that Cori Bush has lived and seen all around her, it's not a new one. This has been going on since America, since the United States of America, that there has been this discrimination, harmful policies that have been put in place to make sure that there is a group that is supreme in this country. Bush's protests caught the attention of the nation, including President Joe Biden, who extended the eviction moratorium one final time. Her protest got us thinking a lot about who is on the receiving end of an eviction order. And what we learned is that evictions do not affect everyone equally. I'm Molly Solomon. And I'm Erin Baldessari. You're listening to Sold Out, Rethinking Housing in America. And this season, we're taking a closer look at evictions, who they happen to, and what that says about inequality in this country. In this episode, we'll look at how Black women are more likely to be evicted and why they're more likely to be renters in the first place. For the last year and a half, I've been following one woman and her son after they were evicted. Her story tells us a lot about the causes of an eviction and the consequences, and how even when you think you've done everything right, you can still lose it all. Hi, hey, It's a mess in here, but The first time I met Jean Kendrick in person last summer, she greeted me with a warm smile and a hug. It was exciting to finally see each other. We've been talking on the phone for months, but with the pandemic, we'd kept our distance. Once we were finally vaccinated, I went to see her. In this room, right now we're in the bedroom. Right now we're in the living room. (laughs) We met in Jean's room at an extended stay hotel in Richmond, California, a city north of Oakland. The building is three stories high, plain, with a big parking lot. Jean's room is close to the lobby on the first floor. And then that's the kitchenette, and then there's a bathroom. Yeah. Oh, one one room. That's her son, Stanley, making a joke that the corner of the room with a side table is the master dining room. It can be hard to understand Stanley when he speaks. That's because when he was 19, he got in a major car accident. He was hit by a street sweeper. Now he's 43 and lives with a traumatic brain injury. He's partly paralyzed on the right side of his body and uses a power wheelchair to get around. That person is Jean. Taking care of Stanley comes naturally to her. She's retired now, but for nearly 40 years, she was a nurse. I loved the idea that I was helping people. And when I originally, back in 71, when I first became a nurse, It was actually bedside, hands-on care. I like the idea that you go in there and you give a back rub, you turn the patient over. Jean never expected to be 70 years old and living out of a hotel room with her adult son. This was supposed to have been like a temporary stop until we got something. How long did you think you'd stay here? A month at the most. A month turned into seven months. They've been living here since they were evicted. Evicted from the two-bedroom duplex they shared, a short 15-minute drive from here. It was public housing, and the rent was less than $200 a month. 
It was something they could afford on Jean's Social Security income and Stanley's disability checks. A quick note before we go any further. The story of Jean and Stanley's eviction is complicated. And what we've learned is that every eviction is. Theirs started in 2019, before the pandemic, but it kept getting pushed back once COVID-19 hit. Stanley had gotten into a dispute with his neighbor, and the police were called. According to the police report, the neighbor sprayed Stanley in the face with bug spray, and she stabbed him with a corkscrew. What happened next sparked off more than two years of legal battles that included their eviction, plus a felony charge against Stanley. We tried to speak to the housing authority about what happened, but they said they couldn't comment because of federal privacy laws. So we put in a public records request and got court tape from their eviction hearing. The court's going to call the matter of the housing housing authority of the city of Richmond versus Stanley Jackson and Jean Kendrick. The property manager testified that Stanley had been called into a meeting to talk about the incident with the neighbor. Things got heated, and Stanley lost his temper and started swearing. And then he pushed the table, wheeled his wheelchair around towards me. I stood up and backed up towards my wall, and he pulled his wheelchair up to me and kicked me about three or four times. This is what ultimately prompted their eviction. It was a violation of Stanley's lease. Gene knows Stanley has a temper, and when he feels threatened or misunderstood, he can lash out. This stems from his bipolar disorder and traumatic brain injury. Jean said she asked the housing authority to include her in any meetings with him, but that didn't happen this time. And he's not to actually talk to anyone uh, unless he has someone there, because sometimes you can't understand him. And he gets frustrated when you have to, what did you say? What did you say? He gets frustrated at me. But I can, since I'm around him, I can understand him a little bit better. She felt like if they had done that and she had been with him, none of this would have happened. For them to have evicted him, knowing our situation, it was cruel and unjust punishment, especially during a pandemic. Where's your heart? The day of the eviction was a rainy Sunday morning, a couple weeks before Christmas 2020. Sheriff deputies were scheduled to show up to change the locks at 6 a.m. Gene and Stanley woke up early to start moving everything into a storage unit. That day was very uh, depressing. She and Stanley had nowhere to go. When they looked around at other housing in the Bay Area, everything was too expensive, which is how they ended up in the hotel room at the extended stay. After we first reported on Gene and Stanley's story, people heard it on the radio and found their GoFundMe page. Close to $14,000 came in, a lot of it from strangers. But they burned through it in a matter of months. We're paying eight, eight oh five a week here. And so that's depleted everything that we had from GoFundMe. That's depleted. <laughs> Everything's gone, you know. They were paying more than $3,000 a month for their room at the Extended Stay Hotel. That's more than most people pay for a mortgage. Jean told me she was shopping for a tent and thought about moving into her car. And she worried a lot about what would happen to both of them if they ended up on the street. Because we can't be on the street. He has a power wheelchair that has to be charged every night. I'm, I got a CPAP machine to breathe at night. So if we live on the street, we're dead. Jean has diabetes, hypertension. She can't stand for long because of her back. She had surgery on it before the eviction began, but it never really healed and she's constantly in pain. My doctor's checking me because my blood pressure's high again. 
And so it's the stress level. Like I keep telling people, I've never had to go through this before. And not knowing which avenues to take in the ins and outs, it's it's hard. Not even my worst enemy I wouldn't wish this on. Gene and Stanley are among the millions of people who get evicted every year in this country. There are many reasons why, but the biggest is failure to pay rent. And for everyone who is evicted, it's about more than losing the roof over your head. It affects all aspects of your life, including your health. Especially for someone who already has comorbidities, so who's already suffering from other impairments or disabilities. Emily Benfer is a professor of law and public health at Wake Forest University. She spent a lot of time researching the intersection of housing and health. When she says comorbidities, she's referring to things like cardiac disease, high blood pressure, respiratory disease, conditions that would put you at a higher risk of death or serious illness if you were evicted. Housing is critical. It's how you refrigerate your medication. It's how you plug in a nebulizer for respiratory distress. It's how you keep yourself safe from environmental harm. It's that sense of stability that can improve mental health outcomes. Studies have shown that an eviction can even take years off your life, that losing your housing or even just the threat of it can result in a higher mortality rate. It can also bring on depression. And that was definitely true for Jean. Even though I'm in extended stay and we have a place to sleep right now, it's not like I'm resting sleep. I keep telling my son, yes, I'm laying down and you hear me snoring, but I'm not resting. I'm exhausted. It's impacting Stanley, too. It's a whole day living is not for me. I've never lived like this before in my life. This this is not the life of me. Stanley says he's also ashamed that they ended up here and that they got evicted in the first place. He has two kids, and he hasn't told them that he and Jean are living out of this hotel. I want them to be proud of me. I don't want them to look down at me. Gene told me his moods have gotten worse. For a while, he talked about suicide. And then he tried to swallow a bottle of medication. He had to go to the hospital. He's doing better now, but he still needs his mom's help. I have to be the strong one for both of us and continually talk him down off of that ledge that he's on. Coming up, we break down why evictions keep happening to families like Jean's. It's about making rent and so much more. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. 
And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. Evictions do not affect everyone equally. When you go to eviction court, you'll see that the majority of people being evicted are Black women and other women of color. We spoke to people who researched these inequities, people like Kristen Brody. She's a professor of financial economics and a fellow at the Brookings Institution. She says part of this is about money. When we think about evictions and why people get evicted, you have to look at how much of their income are they spending on rent. How much savings do they have? What is their income? What is their employment and corresponding unemployment rate? She says low wages and high rents explain why 60% of Black women renters are cost burdened, meaning they pay at least a third of their income on housing. That's more than any other group. Brody says it's not just how much Black women earn. It's also about the jobs that are available. We know that Black people, and particularly women, have... Um, higher unemployment rates compared to the white population, have lower incomes, are concentrated in jobs that are customer-facing and at higher risk of automation, like cashiers or secretaries and service workers. Another reason why women are more likely than men to face eviction? Having kids at home. Sandra Park is a senior attorney with the ACLU. She says landlords often associate children with all kinds of problems whether it's property damage or noise, as well as be concerned that the presence of children um, may attract more attention from the state, whether that means child protective services, law enforcement, um, health inspectors are related to lead poisoning. And there's one more reason that we see more Black women being evicted, and it starts with calling 911 for help. Some cities have laws against the police showing up at a home too many times, regardless of the cause. They're called nuisance ordinances, or crime-free policies. They were designed to make it easier for landlords to evict tenants who are engaged in drug dealing or fights or were getting the cops called on them a lot. But the problem is, the largest number of calls come from people reporting domestic violence. And even if you are calling for help, you can still get thrown out. And Sandra Park has seen the tragic consequences of how this can play out. She had a client in Norristown, Pennsylvania, Lakeisha Briggs, who was being assaulted by an abusive ex-boyfriend. And the police arrived. They arrested him. Uh, But then the officer also told her that she was on three strikes and she could face eviction. When Lakeisha learned this, she stopped calling the police. She didn't want to get kicked out of her home. And then things got so bad that her partner attacked her and stabbed her in the neck. Even then, she refused to call the police. It was a neighbor who called 911, and Lakeisha was airlifted to the hospital. Her life was luckily saved, 
Um, but when she returned to her house, her landlord gave her an eviction notice. Park sued the city of Norristown and got them to strike down the crime-free housing policy. And she's been leading ACLU's national effort against these ordinances. She says they don't really stop crime. And research shows they're more often enforced in Black neighborhoods than white ones. So they add to the disproportionate rate of eviction, especially for Black women. But Kristen Brody says this is not just about economics or over-policing. The real reason we see more Black women evicted? Well, I think that's easy, and the answer is racism. Black women have been the caretakers, as I said, from from the time of enslavement. Black women have been used and abused from enslavement through Reconstruction and through the Civil Rights Movement. And even today, um, we are the caretakers for this society, but... Providing that care doesn't mean that there's reciprocity. That doesn't mean that we're cared for when we need something. And and that's always been the problem in this country. And when you think about it, Jean is the embodiment of this. A nurse for 40 years who in her retirement is taking care of her adult son. They're now living with the consequences of a system that's stacked against her. In his book, Evicted, Sociologist Matthew Desmond wrote that eviction is not just the result of poverty. It's also a cause. An eviction can lead to a job loss. It's linked to homelessness. Families lose neighborhoods, their schools, their community. People who are evicted tend to move into worse neighborhoods with higher crime. And an eviction can follow you for years. It's sometimes referred to as the Scarlet E, a stubborn mark on a tenant's rental history that shows up when a landlord screens them. For Jean and Stanley, it's been really hard to find new housing. Housing is so expensive in the Bay Area, and there's not a lot they can afford. Back in their hotel room, Jean pulls up an app on her phone. See, it has all of these different listings throughout oh. the United States. And so then you're they, looking everywhere. This is Minnesota. Yeah. The app allows her to apply for Section 8 or low-income housing anywhere in the country. I've applied to a lot of them, and there's some that have a year's waiting list, some has five years' waiting list. And then I just put in... Five years. Yeah, five years. People are going to just sit there and go like this, twiddling their thumbs, waiting for someone to call them. She thinks she's applied to 24 places. So many that she had to buy a printer to keep track of all of them. But most places never got back to her at all. She thinks it's because of their eviction. There's usually a box you check on an application. Jean figures it's better to mark it than leave it blank and have the eviction show up on her background check. She told us about this one place in the Bay Area... She called, and they told her there was an opening. And then when I sent them the application and said eviction, they said, oh, we don't have anything. There's a year waiting list. Jean didn't always have to scramble like this for a place to live. Before living in this hotel room, before living in public housing, Jean owned her own home. Coming up, what caused her to lose it all? Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. 
This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Jean Kendrick used to own a home way up in the Oakland Hills. It was a three-bedroom ranch with a big yard that looked out towards San Francisco. They said it was the size of a little less than the size of a football field. When I first moved up there, my legs would get so tired just walking through the house. It was a nice neighborhood with lots of families. Jean liked how quiet and peaceful it was up there. It had a nice view so that when the sun went down, you can see the orange and I had this tree. You know how you see the picture with the black tree and then the orange background? That's the way it looked and I wish I would have took a picture. It was Jean's sister-in-law who bought it in the 80s. Yeah, she bought the house for $150,000. Now, that same house is worth over $1.6 million. Jean and her husband inherited the house from his sister, and they put a lot of love into the house, adding a walk-in tub and a dishwasher. Because I was putting things in there so that I would be comfortable when I retire. Jean and her husband lived there over a decade until he passed away. The trouble started when the house needed a new roof. It was going to cost $14,000. So in 2007, Jean took out a loan on the house to pay for it. I had one of those um, mortgages that was flexible instead of fixed. She says the mortgage company talked her into it. They told her, you can keep this rate for six months, then we'll get you into a fixed rate. It seemed fine at the time. She could manage the payments, about $1,000 a month. But then the payments went way up. And when it went up to $3,333 a month, I couldn't afford it anymore. In 2010, like so many homeowners, Jean lost her dream house to foreclosure. She filed for bankruptcy, sold the house in a quick sale, and moved into a rental. At the time, it's like shock to your system, and you're perceived as, it's only happening to me, and I'm a loser, I failed. But it wasn't just happening to Jean. This story is um, a real devastating illustration of a broader pattern. Jacob Faber is a sociologist at New York University who studies housing and racial inequality. He says the story of what happened to Jean during the Great Recession was happening to a lot of American families. And it hit Black families like Jean's especially hard. People of color, primarily Blacks and Latinos, were targeted for these predatory mortgage loans. In the wake of the financial crisis, waves of foreclosures sank Black home ownership rates, which hit record lows. Faber analyzed millions of loan applications and found that Black households were more than twice as likely to get a riskier subprime loan than white applicants, even if they had higher incomes. And so that's why, for example, we see that um, Blacks and Latinos in 2006 um, who were making um, a quarter of a million dollars a year were more likely to get subprime loans than white borrowers making $35,000 a year. It wasn't just who was being targeted, but where. This subprime lending crisis hit the exact same neighborhoods that have long faced discrimination and still do today. And uh, I would argue that one of the biggest reasons, if not the biggest reason, is this weight of history. History that goes back to the 1930s, back to when our country first invested in who they thought deserved to own a home and who didn't. The story of homes, how a people live, is the story of the foundation on which a nation is built. 
The federal government wanted banks to make it easier for people to afford their homes because they saw homeownership as a way to lift people out of the Great Depression. To make that happen, they created the 30-year fixed-rate mortgage. At the time, it was a revolutionary idea. And now, through the use of a National Housing Act insured mortgage, is brought within the reach of all citizens on a monthly payment plan no greater than rent. House is a very expensive consumer good, right? Chloe Thurston is an assistant professor of political science at Northwestern University. Most of us cannot afford to buy a house outright in cash. Uh, you know, if someone asked you um, to, to pay for a house, you probably don't have, have the money to, to just buy it. Um, and so as a result, most of us have to get financing from somewhere. But to make the banks happy, the government also had to promise to pay them for any borrowers who defaulted. It ensures private uh, lenders to loan to citizens, um, but on certain conditions. Conditions explicitly based on race. It was the practice we know as redlining, where the government backed loans for homes in some neighborhoods, the ones where white families lived, and labeled the places where black families lived as too risky. By 1950, 98% of those loans had gone to white families. And many of them had left for the suburbs. In cities, black families and immigrants were confined to old and deteriorating housing. Landlords jacked up the rent, bleeding black families dry. You can hear stories of housing struggles in songs and poems from this time, including this reading of Langston Hughes' famous poem, Ballad of the Landlord. Landlord, landlord, my roof has sprung a leak. Don't you remember I told you about it way last week? Landlord, landlord, these steps is broken down. When you come up yourself, it's a wonder you don't fall down. Ten bucks you say I owe you? Ten bucks you say is due? Well, that's ten bucks more than I'll pay you till you fix this house up new. What? You're going to get eviction orders? You're going to cut off my heat? You're going to take my furniture and throw it in the street? Hughes also wrote about rent parties, where black households in places like Harlem invited musicians to play to help pay for high rents. Housing was so overcrowded that sometimes two, three, four families lived under one roof. So we know that housing could be very overcrowded, um, that people weren't necessarily paying less just because they were living in, uh, you know, what we would consider to be substandard housing. They were actually, in many cases, paying more. Paying more for housing that was in some cases uninhabitable. Reports of um, issues like rats, not just cracking paint, but crumbling ceilings. Houses without things we would take for granted, like floors, um, or without sort of, you know, working plumbing and things like that. Shut out from conventional home loans, Black families who did become homeowners were often steered to real estate schemes with steep interest rates, where houses could be repossessed with just one missed payment. Even though Congress passed the Fair Housing Act back in 1968, realtors and lenders continue to discriminate. Today, Black homes are undervalued. Realtors continue to steer people to segregated neighborhoods. And Black communities are still reeling from the foreclosure crisis. Being shut out from home ownership, which is probably the single biggest investment a person will make, 
has huge and lasting consequences. If we think about the effects of these laws, it is to lock out from what ended up being this really great opportunity for um, asset and wealth building, also for living in um, uh, neighborhoods where uh, public goods are sort of well provided. Um, it locks many people out from those um, opportunities. And many of those who are locked out from those opportunities are black women. Jean still thinks about her old Oakland house with the big yard. As painful as it was to lose the house, it made her feel better that it went to a young family with kids. I'd always see the vision of kids playing in the backyard, and I said it needs to have a family in it. Sometimes she would drive up there to pick up old mail. The family was always nice and welcomed her. But after a while, it stopped feeling like her home. And when I started seeing them make changes, I couldn't go up there anymore because it was, I said, here, I've worked 13 years to get it this way and you're moving it around. So, you know, I stopped. If Jean still had her home in the Oakland Hills today, things might look different for her and Stanley. They'd have a roof over their heads. They'd have something to help them pay for a medical emergency. Jean could make plans. And most of all, Jean wouldn't have to worry about Stanley and whether he had a safe and affordable place to live. They did get a break last summer. They moved into a nearby hotel as part of a program that provides free housing for people who are homeless. Jean and Stanley have a caseworker, but the place they're staying at is temporary and it's still not their home. Home is something that comes up a lot when I talk to Jean. It's something that feels out of reach. But she's hoping that wherever they land next, it'll be their forever home. Home means knowing that the rent isn't outrageous and that we have a roof over our head. Something that's safe. That would be a blessing. I've lived in all kinds of places and like my mansion up on the hill. Uh, <laughs> I'm not looking for that. I'm just looking for something that's comfortable. Next time on Sold Out, evictions don't just happen to people. There's someone on the other end. Landlords. That's not my problem. My problem is that you need to pay your rent. And you need to pay it on time, like everybody else does. You know, that's the way it works. That's why we give them every opportunity to pay. But if they don't, then they can't live there for free. So just by virtue of, you know, having the resources to, you know, to purchase a property, and own it, landlords are able to charge tenants for access to something that's a fundamental human need, right? Like, we all need some place to live. There's big differences in how landlords do eviction uh, based on who that landlord is. We'll look at who owns rental property, how it's changing, and why that matters for tenants. Sold Out is a production of KQED. This episode was written and reported by us, Aaron Baldessari and Molly Solomon. Aditi Banlamudi produced this episode. Kiana Mogadam is our senior producer. Brendan Willard is our sound engineer. Rob Spate wrote our theme song. Natalia Aldana is our senior engagement producer. And Gerald Berman is our engagement intern. Thanks to our editor, Erica Kelly. Additional editing from Jessica Placek and Otis Taylor Jr. 
We couldn't have made this season without Ethan Tobin Lindsay, Holly Kernan, Erica Aguilar, and Vinny Tong. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.